Welcome to Meet the Early Day Saints, a Wayfair Magazine short audio series. I'm your host, Blair Hodges, and I'm thrilled to take you on this journey through time to meet the earliest disciples of Jesus. Together with esteemed Latter-day Saint scholars, we'll take a look at similarities and differences between ancient Christian faith and ours today. We'll challenge some common assumptions and gain a deeper understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So get ready to embark on a remarkable audio excavation back to the foundations of our faith. Let's meet the early day saints. Welcome back to Meet the Early Day Saints, and today we're joined by Dr. Matthew J. Gray, Professor of Ancient Scripture and Affiliate Faculty Member at the Ancient Near Eastern Studies Program at Brigham Young University. We're talking about the book Ancient Christians, an introduction for Latter-day Saints, and Dr. Gray wrote the chapter Sacred Spaces and Places of Worship from House Churches to Monumental Basilicas. Matt, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks, Blair. It's great to be with you. Yeah, great to be with you, too. This chapter's great, Sacred Spaces. How did the editors approach you with this? Yeah. So first of all, this whole project is a fantastic opportunity to explore the ancient Christian world. And I'm just really honored to have been asked to be part of this volume. And the editors approached me to do the chapter on sacred spaces and places of worship, uh, probably because of my personal research interest and background. I've always been interested in sacred spaces, uh, you know, as an active Latter-day Saint growing up with an interest in not only ward meeting houses and the types of weekly rituals that occur in those spaces, but then having a temple tradition where we go to other set-apart sacred spaces to perform sacred rituals at the highest levels of, you know, of church life. Uh, so I've always had an inherent interest in sacred space and sacred ritual. Then when I went to graduate school and started exploring aspects of the material culture of ancient Judaism and early Christianity, uh, just a natural research interest of mine was the sacred spaces of early Jews and early Christians. So a lot of my uh, master's and doctoral work had been involved with early synagogues and synagogue development, uh, and even the early worship spaces of early Christians. And for the last 10 years, I've been excavating an ancient Jewish synagogue near the Sea of Galilee at a site called Hukok. So, mm. so between uh, temples and synagogues and early churches, I've always had an interest in sacred spaces, the rituals that are performed within those spaces and the ways in which those rituals not only form communities, but transform the individuals of those who engage in it. So this was a very exciting chapter for me to write. Mm, and it sounds really hands-on for you as well. Let's let's go back to the first century, right? The first hundred years after Jesus's crucifixion, resurrection, early Christianity was being nurtured in two main contexts your chapter lays out here. There's the Roman Empire and there's Judaism. And you say that these cultures were filled with sacred spaces. What were they like? They were. Yeah, absolutely. So early Christianity is born into a world, as you said, that is very complex and rich on social, economic, and religious levels. So for the most part, early Christians emerge as a first century sect of Judaism, which means that the earliest followers of Jesus are naturally going to inherit the sacred spaces of a Jewish landscape. So for example, not only the earliest followers during Jesus's ministry, but even in the months and years after Jesus's ministry, for those early Jewish followers of Jesus, the Jerusalem temple, for example, would have been the place where God's presence was seen to have dwelt, where you would go to encounter the divine presence, to offer sacrifices to worship him through the mediation of priests. But at the same time, on the local level, in local villages or towns, uh, you'd probably join your local synagogue. You'd be naturally part of that synagogue community and be gathering on Sabbaths to read Jewish scripture and to discuss uh, Jewish legal issues. So that's the early context in which the first Christians were formed, where it was within that Jewish setting. So basically, Jewish spaces would have been the earliest Christian spaces as well. But 
over time, uh, gradually, those early Jesus followers start becoming somewhat marginalized or separated from their initial Jewish roots, uh, both through social marginalization, uh, their own distinct readings of scripture, their distinct claims of Jesus having been the Messiah, their own internal leadership structures that are beginning to develop, and then eventually even the influx of Gentile or non-Jewish believers into the church. So these early developments start to create somewhat of a distance between the early Jesus followers and their Jewish sacred spaces. And that increasing distance required Christians to find the sacred spaces of their own or that are the spaces of their own in which they could worship and perform their own readings of scripture and their own fellowship meals and their own conversations as believers in Jesus, the Messiah. It must have been kind of tricky because I don't know what the real estate market was like at the time, but <laughs> but synagogues had probably been around for a while and had the, their own spaces set apart. So where did early exactly. Christians turn if they couldn't, I don't know if they could just build their own places right away, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. So as you noted, they couldn't. Uh, not only were congregation sizes too small to justify large buildings, uh, resources within the early Jesus movement simply did not allow for the building of large church structures. And so instead, those earliest generations of Christians found that the most natural and convenient place to gather for their worship experiences would actually be the homes of believers. So ideally, you'd have uh, a member of the of the movement somewhere in a town or a city who was wealthy enough to own a home and that that home then could be opened up to a small group of anywhere between 20 to 50 local believers who then became this gathering that would assemble probably once a week in what we now call a house church. So for the first two centuries of Christianity, it was basically private residential structures that were active as residential structures during the week, but that one day a week was then used for the worship practices and the worship experiences of these early Jesus followers. And so studying these early Christian house churches and the types of activities that occurred within them is a fascinating look into the life and experience of the early Christians. What might a meeting look like at a house church? Yeah, so it's a good question. I Well, first of all, I think it's fascinating to try to envision what these houses would have looked like. Uh, in these first two centuries of Christianity, Christians really don't yet have their own distinctive material culture. So it's very mm-hmm. difficult to know that this particular house was used by Christians. So all <laughs> we can basically do is look at the typical profile of a home in the larger Roman world. Uh, so we go to places like Pompeii or Herculaneum or Ostia in Italy or places like Corinth in Greece or Ephesus in Turkey. And we see the types of homes that existed there in the first and second centuries. And those homes allow us to envision what early Christian gatherings in a house like that could have looked like. Uh, so for example, most of these homes, especially if they were owned by a, a wealthy patron or wealthy patroness, who by the way, would serve as the the leader of the house church, a deacon or a deaconess, would typically have a house that would have an open atrium. So you'd, you'd come in off the street, you'd go in, and there would be an atrium that had, was open air to the sky that allowed for uh, rainwater to come into a fountain in the middle called an impluvium. And surrounding that atrium would be the living rooms of the family that uh, that occupied the home. And then further back into the home you go, you begin to find the dining rooms of the home and even maybe an open garden area of the household. And it's these spaces that were typically used for the residential daily life of the family that could then be used for these Christian gathering experiences once a week. And so if we take a house like that, that is typical in these Roman cities, we could easily imagine that Christians would gather probably on what they're starting to call the Lord's Day uh, or Sunday, the first day of the week. And as they're gathering, 
we could probably imagine them coming into that atrium, surrounding the fountain, maybe greeting each other with what early Christian sources call the kiss of peace. And as they're greeting each other and having conversations, at some point, at least according to the available sources, it seems like at some point they can uh, sing hymns together, probably still gathered in that atrium. Uh, We even know that some of these hymns survive in the New Testament, so we get a sense of what the content of some of these songs might have been. At some point, there's going to be some sermonizing, some preaching. Someone in the house church, maybe the patron or patroness who's overseeing the meeting, uh, will give some sermons or will read from scripture that they might have. They might have Old Testament scripture, probably from the Greek Septuagint, uh, maybe some early Christian writings that are starting to come together as the New Testament. And so that series of activities of singing, praying, reading scripture, having conversation about scripture probably formed the core of what house church gathering would have looked like. And that experience seems to have culminated in what would have been a fellowship meal. We can imagine the Christian gathering of 20 to 50 believers, you know, going back to the triclinium of the home or the dining room of the home where the patron or the patroness will provide a meal. They'll enjoy a banquet together of some kind, maybe even some kind of a potluck if everyone's bringing certain foods to it. And after eating that meal together, they will then conclude the meal by sharing bread and wine together in remembrance of the Last Supper of Jesus. And of course, that final addition to that community meal will eventually become the Christian Eucharist or what Latter-day Saints call the sacrament. So I'd say it's that general pattern of worship of singing, praying, reading scripture, eating together, and then just generally conversing and enjoying fellowship in a household environment that created the kind of the core of early Christian worship for the first two centuries. Hmm. You mentioned hymns, some of them even found in the New Testament. Uh, Don't read one, but let's give people a little Easter egg they can go find themselves. Uh, Do you have an example of that people can go look up? So go to uh, Philippians chapter 2, especially if you have a good study Bible that will walk you through what part of Paul's letter to the Philippians seems to be an early hymn that he is quoting. And if you can imagine the words of that hymn being chanted in an Eastern Mediterranean style, uh, I think you'd have a really nice uh, uh, sense of what it would have been like to gather in these house churches and sing hymns about Jesus as part of this household fellowship. Cool. So there's a little homework for people that can go check that out. All right, Matt. So by the third century, uh, gathering groups were getting larger, right? Christianity was proselyting, people were joining the new faith, and house churches, I imagine, were starting to get a little bit tight in space. So how did they make that work? Yeah, exactly. So according to the ancient literary sources and even starting to appear in the archaeological record, it seems that Christians by the third century were growing in a way that, as you said, the local house churches just weren't quite enough to to house the number of believers. And frankly, the liturgical developments that were occurring within the community were just starting to require or necessitate different use of spaces. So starting around the mid-third century, we begin to have traces in the historical and archaeological record of structures that are sometimes called domus ecclesiae, or assembly houses. And basically, that critical kind of transitional moment in history of Christian space is taking a residential home, just a normal house, and renovating it specifically for the housing of 
the Christian liturgy as it had developed by that time. So for example, by the third century, we have evidence for homes uh, in which a certain wall would be demolished, in which case two Mm -hmm. rooms were now joined into a larger room that could be used as an assembly hall. So that's one type of renovation that could go into a domus ecclesia or an assembly house. So in addition to knocking out a wall and making larger spaces, we start to see the beginnings of modest liturgical furniture or liturgical features being implemented. uh, for example, the probably the best surviving Domus Ecclesia or, or assembly house from the third century is at a site called Dura Europis in Syria. It's a marvelous uh, site that gives us a really great insight into what one of these structures looked like, because not only did that house at Dura Europis knock out a wall and create larger gathering spaces, but they also installed a baptismal font. So for the first time, we see an actual structure where those who are joining the community could enter the house and actually go into a baptismal font, be immersed in their initiation into the community. And next to the baptismal font will be a separate room that seems to be for accompanying rituals of anointing, maybe clothing, maybe even instruction for those who are uh, joining the Christian movement. And so that even modest liturgical furnishing and household renovation facilitated all sorts of fascinating developments in Christian liturgy. And so you can imagine a believer going, getting baptized, being anointed, clothed, instructed, and then joining the larger fellowship of saints that met in that structure in a larger assembly hall that could be used now for reading of scripture. But it's not just the spontaneous reading of scripture that we might have seen in earlier house churches. By this point, we now have more of a set catechism or more of a set uh, reading cycle where certain scriptures are going to be read during certain weeks and months uh, throughout the year. And also, this will be a meeting which is now presided over by an increasingly hierarchical structure. So we Mm -hmm. begin to have church offices developing in a way that they just hadn't quite developed in the first and second century. And some of those developments are reflected architecturally as well. So for example, at the Dura Europis House Church, in that large assembly hall that they made by knocking out a wall, they were able to uh, install a platform for the leader, the ecclesiastical leader of that community, of that house church, to stand on the podium, to interpret scripture. So all of these architectural renovations not only show developments in Christian liturgy, but they also are starting to show developments in Christian hierarchical structures and leadership models, all of which are going through a fascinating period of transition in the third century. Yeah, in our discussion with Ariel Bybee Lofton, she talked about this as well, where you saw this shift in church governance, where house churches would sometimes be led by a female member that sort of shifted here when you had it it became less egalitarian right over time yeah exactly one of the things that's fascinating about the earliest phase of this when we were going back to the first and second century when christians met in house churches is it really was as you said a very egalitarian social structure within this small community where basically it was whoever owned the home was the deacon or the deaconess. So it could be a man or a woman who owned the home, opened up that home, and then presided over whatever meeting would have occurred there. And in that house church setting, it's not only providing a remarkable uh, equalization of women and men, but also of slaves and households, slaves and masters. And Paul Hmm. hints at this in the letter to the Galatians, where he says, in Christ Jesus, in our fellowship, there is no longer male or female, uh, Jew or Gentile, slave or free, but we're all one in Christ Jesus. And those earliest house churches really did reflect a lot of that 
remarkable equalization within the community. But by the third century, as you said, we begin to have developments in liturgy and in church hierarchy. And as the architectural spaces begin to be renovated to reflect those developments. So we see the household nature of these gatherings begin to give way to a more structured nature. And it's in that transition that, as Ariel does such a wonderful job of pointing out, uh, that women start to have a more of a secondary role in church gatherings. And it's usually the local uh, leadership, the the men who are bishops or elders or deacons at the local level who take an increasingly prominent role as the interpreters of scripture, the heads of a liturgy. And so all of those transitions are happening right around the same time at the third century, which is a critical moment for how Christian worship and structures would eventually develop. Right. And you say the Christian calendar itself was developing too. You talked about some of the meals that they would have, these feasts, these agape meals or love meals. Um, And then we start to see the rise in more like festivals festivals and meals around particular holy days. And those meals, it seems like they, they became more formalized too. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. So not only do we begin to see, as you said, certain festivals being celebrated throughout the year, but the household fellowship meal that we saw in earlier centuries itself starts to go away as mm-hmm. the structures become more formalized. So as the the agape feasts or those community fellowship meals that were enjoyed in house churches earlier begin to fade, the part that remains usually typically is the Eucharist. So the bread and the wine at the end of the fellowship meal is what ends up continuing in the Domus Ecclesiae mm-hmm. of the third century and thus become more formalized as the Eucharist or as the communion, the meal of the Lord's Supper. So not only are there going to be more formalized annual festivals, but the weekly partaking of bread and wine becomes increasingly formalized as a vestige of the older agape feasts enjoyed by the household communities. Mm. These structures weren't finished evolving at this point. We go from house churches to these larger assembly houses. Now taking it up to the 4th through the 6th century, there were some really drastic political and religious changes that were happening here that would change the shape of where Christians were worshiping. Give us a sense of what was happening in this time. Yeah, absolutely. So the 4th century marks a major moment of transition for Christianity in in complete because of the conversion of the emperor Constantine to Christianity. So in the first third of the fourth century, so the 320s, 330s uh, AD, uh, we now have for the first time Christianity being an officially acknowledged religion within the Roman Empire for whom the Roman emperor Constantine is now a an imperial patron. And by the end of the fourth century, under the emperor Theodosius, Christianity will now go from being a recently legalized religion to being the official religion of the Mm. Roman Empire. And so that 50 to 70 year period in the fourth century was a major shift for the social circumstances and the social standing of early Christians, because they went within a generation or two from being a previously marginalized social and religious minority group within the Roman Empire to now having official Roman patronage and in fact being the official state religion going forward for the next several centuries. So that remarkable political shift brought with it a very important shift in the building of Christian sacred spaces. And that shift is noted or is reflected by the building of monumental churches based on an old basilical plan. So whereas before we had only had local house churches, uh, renovated Domus Ecclesiae, now in the fourth century going forward, we have monumental basilicas that in one sense are meant to be the new temples of the Roman Empire going forward. And so studying those 
large monumental basilicas, both from an architectural perspective, from the artistic perspective, meaning the images that they hold within them, and uh, and also a literary perspective, the sources that describe them, gives us remarkable insight into the transformation of Christian worship uh, in the fourth century going forward. And so they replaced a lot of these Greco-Roman shrines. Was there any carryover? Because sometimes they're using sort of the same structures, right? They were, or were they always building new structures? No, that's a great question. So uh, two, two quick comments to that question. Uh, the first one is that it is interesting to note that when Christians of the fourth century and following uh, begin building their own monumental church buildings, that they adopt uh, an architectural plan and layout that had already been very prominent in the Greco-Roman world for centuries, and that Mm. is a basilica. So a basilica is designed and had been designed for centuries in the Roman world to be a space of civic gathering, a place with an open hall in the center, side aisles, and then a raised bima in the back so that a local magistrate or a judge could have audiences. So people could gather there, they could have uh, audiences before a royal authority or or an administrative authority. They could have public court cases there. And it was that structure of a basilica that was so useful for facilitating large public gatherings that Christians of the fourth century under Constantine adopted and then adapted that basilical model and turned them into now Christian churches. So the architectural form of these churches uh, had Mm. been a form that had been in use for centuries, but are now being adapted where you still have in a basilical church, you still have the nave or the central space for gathering. You still have the side aisles. And then at the back, you still have the raised platform or the bima, but the additions will be made in these churches to add an apse, a semicircular uh, seating area uh, behind the platform, uh, a Eucharistic altar in the apse, and then a veil or a chancel screen, some kind of partition to separate off the raised platform and the apse from the rest of the space in the building. And so by those slight architectural adaptations, Christians of the fourth century were able to take uh, a traditional basilical model, convert it into a monumental church, which now basically functions as a new temple. And by new temple, what I mean is in the ancient world, you know, temples were monumental structures that were designed to house the divine presence. Uh, Greeks had Mm -hmm. temples, Romans had temples, Jews had the temple in Jerusalem until 70 AD. And with the building of these monumental basilicas, Christians started adapting or bringing in all sorts of temple imagery, temple concepts, temple ideology into those large structures as a way to basically say two things. Uh, One is we are the new temple of the God of Israel. So there is some supersessionism happening here. This idea that these monumental basilicas replace the former Jerusalem temple that housed the God of Israel. Uh, And so there's a lot of language in Christian writings of the fourth century that talk about their monumental churches as the new temple, as the new temple of Mm -hmm. Solomon, or with the features, replicating the features of the Jerusalem temple in, in some fascinating ways. But the second message that these monumental new temples were sending was that they were superseding traditional paganism as well. So the the transitional shift between the 4th into the 5th century saw the building of these monumental Christian churches and the demolition of the traditional Greco-Roman sanctuaries. And sometimes Mm. local Christians even built their monumental basilicas right on the spaces of previous Greek and Roman temples, again, as a way to say that the God of Israel or the God of Christianity is replacing the gods of the Greco-Roman pantheon. So, so these these temples, these these new churches uh, had so much ideology that they were messaging both to their Jewish past and also to the Greco-Roman world that they were replacing. One big point that your chapter makes is that 
people's beliefs help shape the spaces that they worship in and that the spaces where people worship can help shape the beliefs people have that this is this is a back and forth it's a conversation that happens that the spaces are informed by beliefs and the beliefs are informed by the spaces so i imagine as they're really getting back to this temple idea as they're taking on these larger structures that Christian worship itself probably underwent some more changes and maybe take a minute to talk about some of those. It did. Yeah. You said so much in there that's worth unpacking. Uh, first of all, the observation is absolutely correct that, that sacred spaces are fascinating, not only as a reflection of the religious world and perspectives of those who built them, but how then they in turn uh, influence the religious perspectives of the people who continue then to worship in them. And that's something we saw all the way back in the beginning. So with the house churches, for example, a metaphor that I think those house churches really uh, solidified for the early Christians is that they were the new family, the new household of God, right? As a socially, religiously marginalized minority group, early Christians needed to forge a new social identity and house churches allowed them to see each other as members of the new family of God, the new family of faith, the new family of Christ. But the metaphors can kind of shift along with the architecture. So by the time we get to the building of monumental churches that basically replicate temple images from not only the Jerusalem temple, but kind of supersede the temples of the Greco-Roman world, the metaphor that now seems to really resonate with early Christians is the idea of the church as the new temple, meaning this is the space where the divine presence dwells and the, the ritual of this divine space, the sacred space, puts us into communion with the divine presence or with the divine throne room. So it's a it's a different metaphor that's reflected architecturally, but that comes to very powerfully reflect the way that Christians viewed themselves, their community, the relationship to their uh, to the God of the community. And you're absolutely right that the rituals that are then developing and being performed in these monumental basilicas came themselves to have an increasing power to them of evoking the divine presence, right? Whereas earlier we saw fellowship meals and reading of scripture together in a household setting. In these monumental basilicas, we now see a formalized liturgy that really takes part in two sections. Uh, the first section is the liturgy of the word, right? Where there's this procession of ecclesiastical leaders of the church bringing in the gospels through the nave, being followed in procession by the believers. And then they enthrone the, 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 the book, they read from the book, they sing prayers around the reading of the gospels and around scripture. And then that first part comes to an end as they dismiss all non-initiated, non-baptized people of the congregation, and that they then uh, put veils or curtains on all, all the doors to kind of set apart the sanctuary now as extra holy space. Mm. And then the second part of the liturgy is the liturgy of the mysteries, which is now where the Eucharistic presence comes in, where the bread and the wine are brought in. They're put on the altar in the apse, and the chants or the songs or the hymns that are being sung are the holy, holy, holy hymns of God's throne room from Ezekiel chapter six. And so it, the whole ritual is designed to, to not only evoke the divine presence, but to put the earthly congregation into communion with the heavenly throne room. And that ritual, that, that liturgy of the mysteries concludes then as the priest will bless the bread and the wine, thus evoking the divine presence. And then the congregation will line up single file at the chancel screen or at the veil. And the bishop or the priest who's presiding over the, the liturgy will then go to the veil representing God and through the veil or through the chancel screen, through that sacred partition, will then hand the Eucharist to the individual members. So the individual members of the congregation 
are having fellowship with the divine presence at that meeting place of heaven and earth mm. uh, that is represented by the curtain or the veil or the, the chancel screen. So obviously the way that in which all of this ritual had developed by the fourth and fifth century is very different from what we saw in the house churches of the first century. Uh, but they're very powerful in their own way as they're evoking the divine presence and putting the earthly congregations into communion with the heavenly throne room. Mm. As Latter-day Saints hear things like discussions about the veil and meeting people there, it's going to have resonances with temple worship in in Latter-day Saint experience. And your chapter points out that we should expect to see some interesting parallels between ancient liturgy and today's temple worship that people can explore that, that can be really inspiring. And you also offer a caution as well that we should be methodologically responsible. Those are the words that you use. And I think This is really worth unpacking a little bit to let people know what you mean by that. As we're looking at parallels, how can we be methodologically responsible? Yeah, that's a really great question. I think it's so natural for us as Latter-day Saints and for other members of other faith communities as well that have their own uh, liturgical or ritual traditions or their own sacred spaces. It's so natural for us to want to look back and see resonance and parallel and items of continuity. And so as Latter-day Saints who have our own temple tradition uh, in, in the last century, it, you know, several Latter-day Saint writers and thinkers have tried to look back to see parallels. Uh, are they doing things in early Christianity that sound like or that look like the way we would perform a temple service today? And uh, I very much appreciate that enthusiasm. I, I think that's really interesting. And I think it's absolutely worth having that conversation. But when I talked about being methodologically responsible, there what I'm talking about is we do need to make sure that we're avoiding overly enthusiastic parallelomania. Uh, and that's a term that some scholars use to describe searching for connections that aren't really there, right? So trying to force the evidence into a predetermined perspective that makes it look like early Christians are doing things that resonate with the Latter-day Saint Temple Endowment. And we really want to avoid that because I think that it undermines the integrity of what the early Christians themselves were doing. The early Christians were not early Latter-day Saints in all of these ways, there are going to be some really important similarities. So I think it is important that we look at those similarities where we see kind of shared conceptual vocabulary. You know, when we see veils and the separation of sacred space or liturgical clothing of you know garments that priestly mediators wear as they're performing rituals. I mean, that's all uh, stuff that can really inform the way Latter-day Saints view their temple experience, learn the language of how ritual and space operate. I think that is really powerful. And at the same time, I think we also need to appreciate the cultural differences that early Christians of the uh, Roman and eventually the Byzantine Empire were not modern Western Protestant-informed believers. These are ancient Eastern Mediterranean believers in Jesus who had a very different cultural worldview. And so I think it's really important to note the similarities and the differences as, a, as an important part of what we might call increasing our own temple literacy or learning the language of sacred space and ritual. We don't need them to look exactly like us or vice versa. I think the restoration actually allows for those similarities and differences to flourish in really meaningful ways. Uh, the Doctrine and Covenants and uh, the Book of Mormon both have passages that talk about how God can speak to people according to their different times, places, and cultural understanding in their own language. So I think it's okay to allow God to work with these early Christians 
in their Eastern Mediterranean first through sixth century environments and respect that for what it is. And then realize that when we turn to the restoration, we have some shared vocabulary with these early believers. But then the restoration also developed in new and interesting ways, according to new and even fresh revelations. So I think that together reminds us that similarities and differences are both worth exploring. So we want to do that responsibly. And as we do so, I think we can be enriched and informed, feel a sense of fellowship with early Christian believers, and at the same time, grow to appreciate uh, the distinctives of the modern restoration. Thank you for that, Dr. Gray. Um, I just want to recommend your chapter again. It's called Sacred Spaces and Places of Worship from House Churches to Monumental Basilicas. And Dr. Gray is professor of ancient scripture and an affiliate faculty member of the Ancient Near Eastern Studies Program at Brigham Young University. Matt, this has been really fun. I really enjoyed your chapter a lot. Thank you, Blair. It's been great to join you. Thanks. And oh, and I should say too, there's a ton more in there. We we kind of just scratched the surface. Even though these are just like one chapter each, there's so much here. Oh, absolutely. I, I have to give a shout out to the editors of this volume. This is such a great kind of landmark piece. So Jason Combs, Catherine Taylor, Christian Heal, Mark Ellison all did a marvelous job of pulling this together. And if you want to learn more about the conversation that we've been having today about sacred space and sacred ritual, uh, several of these chapters go into aspects of this topic in greater detail. Uh, Christian Heald has a marvelous chapter on Christian sermons in these yes. house churches. Mark Ellison has a marvelous chapter on uh, ritual and worship in these spaces that goes into even greater detail than we did today. Ariel Bybee-Lawton, as you mentioned earlier, has a wonderful chapter on leadership structures and, and women's roles in those structures. So yeah, it's a marvelous volume that touches on so many aspects of the early Christian experience. And so again, it was, it was just an honor to be part of this. Yeah, I have to just give my own perspective. I've read a lot of books that are collections of chapters by different authors. Those can be really hard to pull off. Um, I feel like this one pulled it off so well because there's People aren't stepping on each other's toes. There's not like a lot of repeating, but there's clear connections oh, and resonances so well. And yeah. Yeah. And that's a tribute to the editors and the other great authors that contributed to this volume. Yeah. Yeah. Well, congratulations for being part of it. I really enjoy it a lot. Great. Thank you, Blair. Thank you for listening to Meet the Early Day Saints, a Wayfair Magazine short audio series. Each guest is a contributor to the book Ancient Christians, an Introduction for Latter-day Saints from the Neil A. Maxwell Institute for Religious Scholarship at BYU. If you enjoyed this interview, don't miss the others in this series. You can learn more and subscribe to Wayfair Magazine at wayfairmagazine.org. Thanks to our sponsor, the Faith Matters Foundation, who promotes an expansive view of the restored gospel. And if you're looking for an expansive view, I also recommend my podcast, Fireside with Blair Hodges. It's where we fan the flames of curiosity about life, faith, culture, and more. You'll hear great interviews with incredible people that will really take you by surprise. Fireside with Blair Hodges is available anywhere you get your podcasts and also at firesidepod.org. I hope to see you there by the fire. <laughs>